Wind check, please. Wind 180 at 15 gust 2-9-er. In Waco, Texas, George W. Bush steps down out of Marine One, the presidential helicopter. He's wearing a suit and tie, but he has none of the usual smiles or comments for onlookers or reporters. Instead, his manner is serious and businesslike. It's March 20th, 2005, Palm Sunday. Terry Schiavo has been without food and water for two days. Bush interrupted his vacation at his Crawford, Texas ranch to fly back to Washington, D.C. There, Congress is debating a bill. Uh, we should uh, investigate every avenue before we take the life of, of a living human being. The American people are debating it, too. Um, I totally missed the part in the Constitution where Congress was to uh, convene to get into personal matters like this. Florida Governor Jeb Bush was the first of the famous brothers to get involved in the Shibo case. Opponents say the Bushes are in cahoots with the religious right, that they're bent on undermining the Constitution. The judge in Terry's case, George Greer, certainly seems to think so. I've said publicly and privately that the Bush brothers either didn't take civics or they slept through it. The brothers themselves say the fight is over due process that so far, Terry Schiavo has had less due process than a convicted killer. As President Bush boards Air Force One and takes off to the east, he's hoping to change that. From World Radio and the creative team that brings you the world and everything in it, this is Lawless. I see a wicked man walking down a broken road. I see a ransomed man in the storm trying not to fall for gold. Devil's at the door trying to take control. But the Lord's gonna scatter his bones. I'm New York Times best-selling author and World Magazine senior writer, Lynn Vincent. Lawless is a new true crime podcast that examines a frightening fact of American life, that not every crime is against the law. In America, the essential value of being human has eroded to the point that what once would have been prosecuted as a crime is now unexceptional, even celebrated. In season one of Lawless, we're investigating the Terry Schiavo story, a case that in 2005 shocked the world. This is episode five, Bad Blood. Bobby Schindler is furious. It's Valentine's Day. 12 years before President Bush interrupted his vacation to jet back to Washington, D.C. At the house on Hermosita Street, Bobby grabs his car keys and heads out the door. Michael has just had a screaming match with Terry's father, Bob Schindler. The fight was over money. Terry's mother, Mary, says Michael threw his books against the wall. The two men nearly came to blows, right there at Sable Palms Nursing Home right next to Terry, who was sitting in her chair. Mary had to jump in between them. 
Bobby hears about it the same day, and he is livid. I didn't go over there to harm him. I was mad. I was going to go over to confront him and ask him, what the heck was he doing? You've been saying all along, you're going to do this and do that, and my parents believed you, we believed you. Now out of nowhere, you're going to tell us that, uh, that you're not going to do anything to help, help our sister after you received the money? Bobby is already in the driveway when Mary runs after him, begging him not to go and confront Michael. But Bobby is young and headstrong. She can't talk him down. Then Bob steps in. And my dad saw how emotional I was. I knew that was a bad, bad thing to, you know, it was a bad idea. So he came and grabbed me and said, you know, if you want to talk to Michael, fine. Not now. And, uh, and I didn't go. I don't know what would have happened if I, uh, if, I, if I had saw him as mad as I was. Only three months before, Michael and the Schindlers had marched arm in arm into the courthouse. For two years before that, they'd worked side by side. There'd been tension, but somehow they'd worked it out. Now, though, the relationship is shattered. And the meticulous care for Terry, the manicures, the walks, the makeup, Fran Kassler has something to say about that. We would go to the um, nursing homes and he would take, take care of Terry like she was a little doll. He would have her made up, he would have her hair done, he would have completely outfits, dressed. completely dressed. Then that all stopped. More importantly, so does therapy. All that rehabilitative care the jury saw in that video during the malpractice trial, according to a former nursing assistant at Sable Palms and others, Michael ordered that stopped too. On July 16, 1993, Bob Schindler writes a letter, makes one last appeal to his son-in-law. He reminds Michael of his promise to use the malpractice award to enhance Terry's medical and neurological care. Bob pleads with Michael to share information with them on Terry's condition, asks him even to consider giving Terry back to them so that he, Michael, can move on with his life. Bob ends his letter this way. Are you ready to dedicate the rest of your life to Terry? We are. Let us know your feelings. For the Schindlers, what Michael did next seemed to make his feelings perfectly clear. Lawless is made possible by listeners like you. Additional support comes from Samaritan Ministries, a biblical solution to health care, connecting Christians across the nation who care for one another spiritually and financially when a medical need arises. More at SamaritanMinistries.org slash World Podcast. In the summer of 1993, Mary drives to Sable Palms to visit Terry. Outside, it's a trademark tropical day. Inside, she sits with Terry in the air-conditioned reception area near the entrance. Mary on a little round seat and Terry in a wheelchair. We were talking to her and this other nurse came up and said, well, she looks pretty good, doesn't she? Something like that. And I said, yeah, she looks great. Then the nurse said Terry had been... In the hospital, she was in the hospital. And um, 
We didn't know that. The nurse tells Mary that Terry has been suffering from a serious urinary tract infection, that she'd been on intravenous antibiotics for a couple of days, then switched to oral antibiotics. That's how we found out. She said, yeah, she told us, she says, um, it's a good thing she's on the antibiotics or she would have had, a, you know, sepsis. Sepsis. That's what happens when a person's body turns on itself because of an infection that gets out of control. Left untreated, sepsis triggers a cascade of symptoms. Fever, difficulty breathing, low blood pressure, a runaway heart rate, and then death. Terry gets UTIs every once in a while. Mary is relieved to know that the nursing home had caught the infection. But it concerns her that Terry has been in the hospital without her knowing it. All I remember is I went home and I didn't say anything when I was there because I never found out my information that much when I was there. I used to find it out more on the phone. That's because after that Valentine's Day fight, Michael ordered Sable Palms not to share any of Terry's medical information with her parents. There's this one nurse that could talk to me on the phone. And when I got home, I called, and she's the one that told me. What the nurse says on the phone jolts Mary. Michael had ordered the Sable Palm staff not to treat Terry's UTI, not to give her antibiotics. Michael had decided to let the infection turn to sepsis, which he was aware would likely end Terry's life. This isn't just the nurse's interpretation, and it isn't Mary's. That fall, Michael would say the same thing in a deposition. More on that in a moment. Now, which month Michael ordered doctors not to treat Terry's infection? That's in dispute. Mary says June or July. Michael says August. But there's no question that in this escalating family feud, the summer of 1993 was a hot one. That July, Michael is hanging out at an orthodontist's office. Not most people's idea of a good time, but Michael's friends with the orthodontist. And the all-female office staff? Well, they decide to do a little matchmaking. The girls at the front desk tell Michael there's a patient in the waiting room that he should meet. A brunette in her late 20s. Jody Sintones. Michael writes about that first meeting in his 2005 book, Terry, the truth. He says that when he first sees Jody, he tries not to stare. She had long, beautiful legs, he writes. I'm thinking, gorgeous girl. Michael follows Jody back to the treatment room. The little flock of dental matchmakers giggles as they pass. Michael and Jody start chatting and keep chatting even as the staff begins to work on her teeth. Later, Michael walks Jody to her car, asks her if she'd like to go to dinner. Jody looks at Michael and says three simple words. I don't date. But Michael Shibo isn't a man who gives up easily. A few weeks later, Michael asks Jody out again. They go to lunch and hit it off. The first time they went on a real date, Michael follows up with a dozen red roses. His relationship with Jody is his second romantic one since Terry was injured in February 1990. In fact, it's his second within the previous 18 months. 
Michael met Jody in July 1993. I'd like to ask Jody about those days, about that summer. Hi, this is Lynn Vincent. I'm calling for Jody Sintonzi. Please give me a call back. It's regarding a podcast I'm doing on the Terry Schiavo case. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. I had to leave a message. So far, Jody hasn't called me back. But there's still time. It was late summer 1993 when Bob and Mary Schindler decided to file suit against their son-in-law. Their goal? To remove him as Terry's guardian. The Schindlers had been upset over their falling out with Michael, but the speed with which he'd changed his plans for Terry's future, it was like whiplash. Now the Schindlers needed a lawyer. They turned to Jim Sheehan. I traveled with my co-writer, Anna Johansson Brown, to meet Sheehan in May 2021. We meet on a lush green street in the historic Old Northeast neighborhood of St. Petersburg. Hi. I'm Anna. Hi, Anna. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Lynn. Lynn. Nice hey, to meet you. Thanks for coming by. Yeah. My pleasure. Our interview takes place in the tiny living room of a nearby Airbnb. So tell me a little bit about this project. I will. Um, Sheehan is slim and tan, white-haired and confident. He looks like Florida. Blue polo shirt, seersucker shorts, and boat shoes. These days, Sheehan's a professor of law at Stetson University. Maybe I should just tell you what I know. He's also a careful man. He tells me right up front that he'll share only what he remembers about his own involvement in the Shivo case. Beyond that, he won't speculate. Sheehan tells me he first learned of the Schindlers from their friend Fran Kassler in late summer 1993. I was a an attorney practicing in downtown St. Petersburg. I was a sole practitioner. And uh, Fran was my secretary. She just asked me if I could help them. Fran told Sheehan about Michael's order to withhold antibiotics and about the Schindler's outrage. But Sheehan doesn't remember that as his primary reason for accepting the case. For him, the whole case boiled down to one thing. Michael had a conflict of interest. Uh, he was um, moving on with his life. And he, was, he had this money that was supposed to be used uh, to take care of Terry. So that created a conflict for him. If something happened to her, that money would be his. It wouldn't be spent on her uh, well-being, which to me uh, was just a clear uh, conflict of interest. But Michael argues if he had a conflict of interest... The Schindlers did, too. He says his attorney, Steve Nelson, sent Bob and Mary a letter suggesting that the court appoint an independent guardian for Terry. That way, the Schindlers could share decision-making authority with Michael. But the Schindlers never replied to that offer, Michael says, which confirmed his view that Bob Schindler was only in it for Terry's money. November 19, 1993. Jim Sheehan is driving over to Oak Brook Plaza in Clearwater to the law office of attorney Stephen Nilsson. Sheehan is about to depose Michael Schiavo. It's a gorgeous Florida day. 77 in St. Pete, 76 in Clearwater. News and weather together at the top and bottom of every hour. Those warm temperatures would soon seem mild compared to the heat about to be generated in Nielsen's office. 
For Sheehan, the question at the center of Schindler versus Schiavo, version one, was this. Which party, Michael or the Schindlers, would be the best guardian for Terry? That was the way I was going to present it, uh, as simply, um, Judge, you should transfer guardianship uh, from Michael, who's moving on with his life, to uh, Bob and Mary, because it's their daughter, it's their life to take care of their daughter, uh, whatever that is. Remember, this guardianship action occurred years before the feeding tube case that got so much public attention. But the guardianship fight itself would trigger indignance, even derision, that lasted long after Terry's death. Terry needed a guardian because she was incapacitated. But as Michael's first attorney, Dan Greco, pointed out, that role doesn't automatically fall to the spouse in the state of Florida and in many other jurisdictions. Still, there were a lot of people who were outraged that Terry's parents thought they could somehow displace her husband as Terry's guardian. Here are Michael Hobbs and Sarah Marshall, hosts of the podcast You're Wrong About, still whinging about it in 2019. The Schindlers have no standing under the law to do this because the entire law is set up that the surrogacy of the person switches from the parents to the spouse when they get married. This is the entire basis of law. Right. They're like, you can't invalidate heteronormativity. I'm <laughs> yeah. sorry. <laughs> yeah. And so essentially they're, they're arguing that they have some sort of right to supersede her spouse. Hmm. There is no legal basis for that whatsoever. Sorry, Hobbs and Marshall. You're wrong about that, so to speak. No, under Florida's guardianship statute, then and now, the court may appoint any person who is what the law calls fit and proper and qualified. The law and the courts give preference to people related by blood or marriage. That means the Schindlers had just as much right to become Terry's guardians as Michael did. Sheehan pulls into Oak Brook Plaza, parks, and heads inside. It's early afternoon by the time he sits down with Michael and his attorney, Stephen Nielsen. Bob Schindler is in the room, also a court reporter. I have the transcript she prepared. The deposition makes extremely interesting reading. We've posted the whole thing for you at lawlesspodcast.com in the notes for this episode. Even though the transcript is almost 20 years old, you can almost hear the room crackling with static. That's because when Sheehan begins questioning Michael, Nielsen objects to everything. Over the next two hours and 20 minutes, he'll object more than 50 times. About a third of the way in, Sheehan tells him, we can do this all day. Sheehan first asks Michael about his romantic relationships with Cindy and Jody, both of which Michael confirms. Then Sheehan turns to medical questions. He asks Michael whether he had changed any recent instructions to the Sable Palm staff with regard to Terry's care. As I say, the only record here is by a legal transcriptionist, so no audio is available. But the following is word for word. After speaking with my doctor, I gave an order not to treat a bladder infection Terry had. I talked to him about what he felt Terry's future was. And he told me that Terry is basically going to be like this for the rest of her life. 
And what did the doctor say would happen if Terry wasn't treated with antibiotics? That sometimes urinary tract infections will turn to sepsis and infection throughout the body. The patient would uh, pass on. Michael names the doctor he says suggested not treating Terry's next infection, which eventually would turn to sepsis and take her life. It was a respected internist, he said. But that would seem to violate Florida law if Sable Palms were not to treat Terry for something that wasn't life-threatening otherwise. Terry's UTI had nothing to do with her disability, which was brain damage. Allowing an infection to rage out of control wouldn't have been letting Terry die. It would have been actively killing her. So here's my question. Would that doctor really have counseled Michael to act in a way that might violate the law? Sadly, I can't ask him. When I called his home, his wife told me he passed away five years ago. Let's go back to the deposition. Michael at first claimed it was the internist who suggested inducing sepsis, that the conversation took place in July 1993. Later in the deposition, though, Michael said no doctor made that sepsis suggestion prior to November 18, 1993. When Michael said that, Nilsen stepped in with a long string of objections. Let me just boil them down. Nilsen said Sheehan's questions were unfair and improper, that Michael couldn't hold all Sheehan's questions in his mind at the same time. So Sheehan asked Michael again, who advised him not to treat Terry's infection? Michael then returned to his previous answer. It was the internist, back in July. Now Sheehan puts it all together, connecting intentions with outcome. Sheehan wants to know, so when you made the decision not to treat Terry's bladder infection, you in effect were making a decision to allow her to pass on? I was making a decision on what Terry would want. There it is, the question that would form the burning center of the very public debate that would consume America. What did Terry Schiavo want? Back in 1993, though, Sheehan asks Michael a simple question. How does he know what Terry wants? She was my wife. I lived with her. We shared things. We shared a bed. We shared our thoughts. Michael then gives Sheehan an example. It's a story about a train ride he and Terry took in late 1985 or 1986. At the time, Terry's grandmother was dying. And according to Michael, Terry was in a reflective mood. She started talking about an uncle of hers. He'd lost his wife and child in a tragic accident. He was grieving. I believe he went out one night, had a few drinks and wrapped his car around a telephone pole. And her uncle was in a coma for a while and emerged a man that she never knew anymore. He was disabled. He can't walk, he can't do things for himself. His kids are his power of attorney now. We got into a discussion about that and she said to me, I would never want to live like that. I would just want to die. If you've been listening to Lawless, you've already met the man Michael said prompted that conversation. His name is Uncle Fred. Let's rewind to episode three, 
when we recounted Terry and Michael's wedding. I mentioned a handsome older man. I mentioned his navy suit, that he walked with a slight limp and a cane. I asked Uncle Fred's daughter, Kathy Brown, about her dad's accident and his recovery. At the time, Brown was a nurse. She and her sister used cutting-edge therapies to pull their dad out of his coma. It took them a week. Within a month, they were taking him out to dinner at fancy restaurants. That was 1980. He was responsive. He was starting to talk again. And we got to the table. We pushed him up against the table, and he pulled his napkin to put it on his lap. And I started to cry. That's when I knew he was back. Michael says Terry told him the story about Uncle Fred's profound and continuing disability in late 1985 or early 1986. But there's Uncle Fred in that 1984 wedding video, strolling through the receiving line, smiling and chatting, kissing Terry on the cheek, and shaking Michael's hand. Why is all this important? Because the Uncle Fred story would become the centerpiece in fact, the only piece of Michael's first attempt to have Terry's feeding tube removed by claiming she wouldn't have wanted to live. You'll hear a lot more from Kathy Brown in Episode 6. Back in Nielsen's office, Jim Sheehan asked Michael whether, if Terry got another infection, he'd instruct doctors not to treat her again. He says probably not. Evidently, there's a law out there that says I can't do it. But what about this time, Sheehan wants to know. When Michael made the decision that likely would have ended Terry's life, did he think he had any obligation to let her parents know? I probably would have let them know, sooner or later. Jim Sheehan filed the Schindler's guardianship case in the Circuit Court of the 6th Judicial District. In February 1994, Circuit Court Judge Thomas Pinnock Jr. appoints a guardian ad litem for Terry. That's different from a regular guardian. Guardian ad litem is a, a position that I believe every state in this country has as part That's of That's attorney staff. Jay Wolfson. He would later become Terry's guardian ad litem in the feeding tube case. When there's a party in uh, an action that the state has determined is legally incapacitated, and they do not have their own representation. And there are other parties, such as family members, who are disputing issues associated with that person's rights. Or if the state itself has a concern about the exercise of that person's rights, then a guardian ad litem may be appointed by the courts. The feeding tube case wouldn't be filed for another five years. In the 1993 case, Terry's guardian ad litem is a man named John Pesserick. Pesserick is an imposing man, six foot three and a half, reminds people of the actor Gregory Peck. Part of Pesserick's job is to investigate allegations against Michael Schiavo and make a determination. Is he a fit guardian for his wife? Pesserick is the investigator who conducted interviews with 13 members of the Sable Palms nursing staff. He's the one who learned that Michael yelled and screamed, intimidated the staff, that his treatment of nurses caused them to break down in tears. Pesserick was appointed on February 23, 1994. 
one week later, he was ready to deliver his report. So we were prepared for an evidentiary hearing. Uh, the judge uh, called the guardian ad litem up. He basically read his report, and his opinion was that, that Michael should remain his guardian. In his report, Pesarek says Michael was a nursing home administrator's worst nightmare. Those are the actual words in his report. But Pesarek says that Michael's poor treatment of Terry's nurses actually got her more attention than the other residents. He thinks it's a good thing. As soon as Pesarek finishes delivering his report, Judge Pinnock says, uh, That's it, I'm denying the, the petition. And the judge walks out. The Schindlers had lost. Michael would remain Terry's guardian. Sheehan is shocked. Neither attorney got to cross-examine him. Uh, both of us wanted to. He wants to ask Pesarek, what about that conflict of interest? And Sheehan wants to know, could it really be that Michael is the best person to care for Terry when he'd already tried once to end her life? To Sheehan, the worst thing was that Pinnock dismissed the Schindler's case with prejudice. That meant the Schindlers could never again challenge Michael's guardianship in court. When I talk to her now, Mary Schindler has a lot of regrets about that time. It was just things were happening so fast. To be thrown in front of all this stuff, you know, in the, like this, I just wasn't that type of person. I came from a little town. And I, I just wasn't used to all that stuff. And all that stuff they were talking about, all that legal stuff, I didn't want any part of it. She says they were just an ordinary family, that they didn't know the ins and outs of the legal system. Plus, they were optimistic. The Schindlers believed that at the end of the day, justice would prevail. After all, how could anyone knowingly hurt their little girl? By the spring of 1994, Michael and Jody have been dating for about 10 months. It's been on again, off again. But every time they start to get really close, Michael says, he feels conflicted. Part of him still remembering his wife. He'd break things off. Then, a month later, he'd call Jody just to talk. And then it would grow into something more. But in April of 1994, they break up again. This time, it's Jody who ends things. Michael takes a call from another woman right in front of her. Furious, she tells him he's ripped her heart out for the last time and walks out. And they don't speak again for a very long time. That same month, Michael moves Terry out of Sable Palms and into a different nursing home, Palm Garden. When I first came on board, they had her at the front of the nursing station when visitors would enter. That's registered nurse yeah, Carla Sauer Iyer. She would just smile. She would actually react. She reacted to her environment. She reacted to people. She reacted to her name. Um, after a while, visitors that are regular to come in to see their loved ones would know Terry and hi, Terry. And she would act with it like giggle and she would just light up. On Michael's orders, Terry receives no therapy at Palm Garden, except for what the nurses managed to slip in behind Michael's back. Michael didn't want range of motion or any PT, physical therapy, or speech therapy, occupational therapy. When Carla was hired there, she received a sober warning. 
cross Michael Shibo, and you will be fired. She crossed him anyway. We actually put, you know, like washcloths in her hands were contracted and underneath her knees and put her booties on her feet so she wouldn't get bed sores. And he wanted, he said that was therapy. Take it out. I went to visit Carla in the strawberry capital of the world, Plant City, Florida. She's blonde and colorful, pink lipstick and turquoise eyeliner. We conduct our interview in a guest house Carla and her husband have on their property. Carla has it decorated with Disney World cast-offs, items she picked up for a few dollars a piece during the equivalent of theme park garage sales, big, tall Vera Bradley bookcases, an entire giant rack of unopened DVDs. Carla cared for Terry at Palm Garden for about 18 months between 1995 and 1996. She's actually a little like Terry, a heart for the weak and injured. Terry rescued one of her own cats, Shayna, as an injured kitten. When I visit Carla, she's in the process of rescuing a kitten too. A tabby, maybe eight or 10 weeks old. The kitten looks, well. <laughs> I know she looks awful, but she was um, arrived at my door, so I don't know if she was dropped or she wandered over. And her what eyes, did she look like when she came to your door? Red, red bulging, bleeding eyes. Her eye, to this eye was, was really out of the socket. So I gently put it kind of in, put, put a glove on and kind of pushed it back in put some liquid antibiotics, like amoxicillin, and the veterinarian wanted either to euthanize her or just take both eyeballs out, saying she's blind. What was your reaction when the vet said euthanize her? Oh, absolutely not. I don't agree in, in euthanasia. Whatever you can save and, you know, just work with a, with a patient or an animal in this case and give a lot of TLC. A little bit of little bit of infection. Everybody can have an eye infection. Do right. we do we euthanize those people? Michael and Jody's breakup in April 1994 lasts longer than the others. They don't speak for months. But finally, Michael calls Jody just to talk again, and soon they're back together. That October, the two of them are outside doing yard work at Jody's house digging in the dirt, laying fresh sod out front. That's when Michael asks a big question. He wants to know if Jody will marry him. Someday. Jody doesn't remember exactly what she said. Something like, whatever. She doesn't really believe him until Michael reaches into his pocket and pulls out a ring. next time on Lawless. And the Terry that I saw laid in the bed, her eyes were open. You know, some people said, you know, her eyes were expressive. I never found that to be true. She just had a vacant glare. She was in, by that time, a persistent vegetative state. Lawless is a production of World Radio. Our executive producer is Paul Butler. Our production assistant is Lillian Hammond. Music by Will Sheehan. Audio support from Creative Genius Productions. Lawless is reported and written by Anna Johansson-Brown, 
Bonnie Pritchett, and me, Lynn Vincent. For a list of additional audio sources in this episode, visit lawlesspodcast.com. Thank you for joining us. Lawless is made possible by listeners like you. Additional support comes from Samaritan Ministries, a community of Christians who, through prayer, encouragement, and financial support, care for one another when there's a medical need. It's biblical, affordable health care sharing with no network restrictions, and new members are welcome any time of the year. More at SamaritanMinistries.org slash world podcast.